Thronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes, written by William Hearn. Narrated by the author. Episode 9. Exchange. Chapter 45. Early Tuesday morning. Christmas Eve. I'm back in the Range Rover, slumbering in the back seat, as Ruth skillfully navigates the small country roads. Collins had insisted I wear a hood for the first part of the drive, but I'm so tired that I probably wouldn't have seen anything in any case. I was asleep practically before we were out of the garage. We're heading back to the southeast of England, using only minor roads. Now that the police are looking for me, Collins is fearful of using motorways and major roads. Too many road cameras, he said, and I couldn't exactly argue with him. He also insisted on having someone drive me so that I could remain hidden in the back. I'm so tired in any case that I'm in no fit state to drive anyway. I'm carrying with me a memory stick, a very important memory stick. On it are the credentials required for getting access to the Kronos systems, email server, code repositories, forums, everything. And when I say everything... I really do mean everything, including the private wallet that links to several billion dollars worth of cube. I sleep deeply and don't browse until just north of Potter's Bar, close to the M25, the perimeter motorway around London. I beg for a comfort break and Ruth complies, pulling into a 24-hour petrol station that has a toilet. I pull a hat tight down over my head and zip my jacket up to my chin in order to disguise myself from the CCTV cameras that undoubtedly monitor all parts of the station. I jump down from the rover and head for the toilets while Ruth refuels the car. After I've done my business, I return to the car. Ruth is inside the shop, paying for the diesel. I look at the clock in the rover's dashboard. It's showing 6.20am. There's a payphone just to the side of the station. I know that I'm a fugitive, but there's someone I really need to call. I dash over to the phone box, drop in a couple of coins, and dial a number from memory. I hear the ringing tone. One ring, two ring, three, four. After six rings, the phone is picked up. A woman's voice answers, sounding dazed. Hello? Hi, Mum, I say. It's me, Tom. Thomas, are you okay? My mother responds, instantly awake. I'm fine, I reassure her. The police came round here last night, she begins to say. I know, I say, interrupting her. I don't have a lot of time right now, but I need you to know that it was self-defence. He attacked me. We struggled. I think he shot himself with his own gun. Thomas, you need to go to the police, says my mother. And I will, I reassure her. But there's something I must do first. I promise that as soon as it's done, I'm going to hand myself in and get this all straightened out. This thing you have to do, my mother says. Is it dangerous? I pause for a moment pondering whether to reassure her by lying or tell her the truth. Yes, it is, 
I tell her. But I can handle this. I promise. I can fix all of this. I just need a little time. Suddenly, Ruth is beside me. She rips the phone out of my hand and hangs it up. People on the run from the police do not make phone calls, she says sternly. I... I was just calling my mother to say I'm okay, I stammer, embarrassed to be caught at the phone. Your mother, says Ruth, you're even more of a fool. The police will be tracing every call to her, just in case you were stupid enough to call. Well, I guess that bet paid off. She pulls me away from the booth. Time to go, she commands. Chastised, I walk back to the car and get in. Ruth sits down at the wheel and we head off. Ruth drives for about half an hour. Then she pulls into a lay-by and opens her door. Stay here, she commands, her Scottish accent far more pronounced when she's angry. She gets out and moves behind the car. I see her pull out a mobile phone and call someone. As an experiment, I try opening my side door, but find that it refuses to do so. I suspect that Ruth has turned on the child-proof locking in order to prevent me from wandering. Ruth talks on the phone for about five minutes, quite animatedly at times. Then she puts her phone away and gets back into the car. Without speaking, she starts the engine and we head off again. We drive another half hour through the suburbs of North London. Ruth then pulls into the car park of a closed-down supermarket. The supermarket, a victim of the recession, is boarded up with graffiti scrawled over it. Weeds and wild flowers have begun to grow through cracks in the tarmac of the car park. The car park is deserted, save for a lone motorcycle parked neatly in the far corner, out of sight from the entrance. It gleams in the early morning sunshine and is obviously new. A pair of helmets and riding levers have been placed neatly on top of the bike. Ruth pulls up beside the motorbike. We're switching forms of transport, she says, turning to me, and all because of your stunt back there at the petrol station. I gather my stuff, and she lets me out of the Range Rover. She passes me one of the riding levers. Put these on, she orders, quickly. I do as I'm told. I take off my trousers and jacket and put the levers on. Ruth does the same. We stuff our clothes into one of the side panniers on the bike. From the other pannier, Ruth produces a cell phone. She tosses it to me. Use this to keep in touch with me, she says. It's programmed to call only my mobile. Don't even think about trying to change that. You can't. She then picks up one of the helmets and turns it upside down. A key falls out into her hand. She gets on the motorcycle and pulls on the helmet. She puts the key in the ignition and starts the bike. Its engine roars into life. She passes the other helmet to me. Put this on and get behind me, she commands. I put the helmet on my head and do up the chin strap. I then awkwardly climb onto the bike. This is my first time riding one. I start to put my arms around Ruth's torso, but she says, Use the handbar to hold on, please. I feel down behind me, 
and grip onto the bar with both hands. Off we go, Ruth says, accelerating the bike. Don't you need to lock the Range Rover? I ask as we pull out of the car park. Ruth shakes her head. Someone will be along soon to take care of it, she says. Chapter 46 Tuesday evening, Christmas Eve The car is old and decidedly beat up. Its suspension is taking a pounding from the potholes in the dirt track I'm driving on that meanders through the forest. The car's headlights flicker every so often, and I worry that I'm about to be plunged into darkness. Given that there's absolutely no light outside, and will not be any for at least another ten hours, that would be a problem. I stop at a fork in the road and peer at the instructions I've been given. I then get out of the car and do a quick pee behind one of the trees. Then I get back into the car, start it up, and take the track to the right. Earlier, from the comforting normality of a public park, I had called Nadia. I told her that I was ready to do the exchange. Cube for Max, Mina and Faser. We haggled over the venue for the handover, but eventually agreed to a remote location in Norfolk. Nadia specified the time of the handover and was insistent that I came alone and in the transport provided by the Bratva. This transportation I found in a side street in South London, a beat-up old Vauxhall with the keys in the ignition. A printed sheet of driving instructions lay on the back seat. While I was bargaining with Nadia, Ruth was busy too. She swapped the motorcycle for, who knows how, a large Mercedes SUV. If anything, it's more luxurious than the Range Rover she drove previously. Ruth and I agreed a rendezvous location for afterwards, situated far enough away from the site of the handover to give me time to check that the Bratva isn't following us. All I have to do is get Max, Faser and Mina to the rendezvous point safely. We then all jump into the Mercedes and get the hell out of Dodge City, all the way back to Shea Collins. After another 30 minutes drive, I arrive at the handover location, an old gravel quarry. Judging by the state of the signage outside, the place has been closed for years. Through the dark, I can see the hulking shadows of old quarry equipment slowly being eroded by nature. Inside the quarry, another car is waiting for me. It flashes its headlights and I flash mine back, using the precise sequence that I was given. The front doors of the car open and two people get out. One of them is Nadia. The other I recognise as D. Both are dressed casually. I get out of my car and walk towards them. We meet halfway between the two cars. Hello, I say to Nadia. I nod to her accomplice. Nice to see you off duty for once. Dee just stares impassively at me. To business, Nadia says, clearly not in the mood for chit-chat. Have you brought the goods? Of course, I say. First, 
We search you and your car, says Nadia, just to check that you haven't brought anything else. D searches me thoroughly. Finally, when he's satisfied, he pulls out a torch from his pocket and goes over and checks out the car. This takes even longer. He's not one for skimping details. Eventually, though, he finishes his search and gives the thumbs up to Nadia. OK, show me what you've brought, orders Nadia. I pull from my shirt pocket the memory stick. Everything you need to take control of Cube is on this, I say. Passwords, security certificates, access to the source code, you name it, it's on here. D takes the memory stick from me. He pulls a tablet computer from his jacket pocket and plugs the stick into it. He waits for the stick to mount and then scans it for malware. He then opens a file browser and inspects the file directories on the memory stick. Apparently satisfied, he then passes it to Nadia. She takes a long look at the files, opening a couple and studying them for several minutes. Finally, she speaks. Everything seems in order. I'm impressed that you managed to convince the group to hand over this. Some of them knew Buckeridge, I say. They didn't want anyone else to die. Nadia nods. A wise choice, she says. She leans over and says something to Dee. He walks back to the car and opens one of the passenger doors. He leans in and pulls Phaser, Mina and finally Max out of the back. Their hands are bound and their mouths are covered with masking tape. Their clothes are covered with dust and grime. As far as I can recall, they're wearing exactly the same clothes they had on when they were abducted on Thursday morning. Without saying another word, Nadia and Dee get back into their car and drive off. I rush over to the trio. Are you all okay? I ask Max as I remove the gag from his mouth. I'm okay, but Phaser isn't great, Max says. The baby. Things haven't been going well. I look at Phaser. She's very pale. I remove her gag and the rope from around her hands. I feel her forehead. She's decidedly warm. Her breathing is shallow. Let's get into the car, I say. We've got to get as far away from here as possible. Everyone piles in the car and I turn the ignition, praying that the engine will start. It stutters for a moment and then roars into life. I put the car in gear and we head for the other exit out of the quarry, back the way that I came. The car bounces as we move onto the dirt track that leads into the forest. I drive as fast as I dare without risking breaking an axle. Max sits in the back with Phaser, holding and comforting her. Mina sits in the front, beside me. How did they treat you? I ask Mina. OK, I guess, she answers. They gave us food and water. We were locked up somewhere underground. It was warm and dry, but very basic. We had two buckets, one for washing in and the other for use as a toilet. She shudders at the memory. I am so looking forward to having a proper bath. How is she? I say, gesturing at Phaser. 
Not good. Not at all good, Mina replies. The stress of being held hostage so late in pregnancy. We need to get her checked out in a hospital as soon as possible. Okay, I say, but not anywhere around here. Nadia and co. are going to be looking for us shortly. We have to get far enough away from them before that happens. Why would they be looking for us? asks Max from the back seat. Because Christoph is just about to lose control of Cube, I answer. What do you mean? asks Max. There's a tripwire feature built into the Kronos servers, I say, keeping my eyes focused on navigating the bumpy road in front of me. If anyone attempts to access the folder containing the cube wallet of Mehmet Yilmaz, the servers reset their user passwords, invalidate access certificates and reboot themselves. Anyone on the system at the time gets thrown off. And why do you think they'll access that folder quickly? asks Mina. That's been their objective all along, I tell her. This was never about control of Cube. The code is open source and is run on hundreds of thousands of computers around the world. The Bratfer knows this. They know they can't control Cube. What they're after are the billions of dollars worth of Cube in the Mehmet Yilmaz wallet. As I drive, I imagine the change in Nadia's expression as she locates the wallet on the Kronos system and then is thrown out as the server reboots and then the ever more frantic efforts to log back in, as attempt after attempt with the supplied credentials fails. I permit myself a small smile of satisfaction, but only a very small one. We are, quite literally, not out of the woods yet. This forest road is windy, but it has no turn-offs or junctions. Anyone following us just needs to have a better car, and they'd catch up to us in no time. I keep my foot as hard on the accelerator as I dare. The car's headlights are dipped in order to reduce the amount of light we're giving out, and so limit the distance from which we can be spotted. We come to the T-junction where I stopped. I stop the car and walk over to the tree where I took a pee earlier. I pull back one of the stones from beside the tree and retrieve my cell phone. I return to the car. I turn the phone on and glance at the signal bar. Or rather, where there should be a signal bar. The thing's not picking up any service at all. Crap. Was that one of the reasons that the Bratfar picked this remote location for the handover? I start the car up again and we continue. After another five minutes, I'm beginning to relax but then I hear a rattle start up from the car's engine. It gets louder. Then the engine coughs, splutters, and then cuts out. Am I out of fuel? I glance at the gauge. It still says that I've got half a tank full. But now that I think about it, it's been saying that ever since I picked the car up in South London. I get out of the car and flip open the fuel cap. I tap the inside of the tank and get nothing but a hollow ring in response. Yep, we're out of fuel. Sam's words about Christoph once again ring through my head. He never leaves loose ends. I get back into the car. 
We're out of petrol, I tell my passengers. Max lets out an audible groan. They rigged the gauge and gave us just enough fuel to get to the handover point plus a bit extra, I tell him. They don't want us to escape. Which means we better get off the road and away from this car, says Mina, as she opens her door to get out. She helps her sister out of the car. Phaser is very quiet, her breathing still shallow. From the way that Mina is fussing over her, I can tell she's very concerned for her condition. I get out of the car myself and look about. It's total blackness in all directions. There are trees on both sides of the road, and I see no sign of lights or habitation. I pull out my cell phone and glance at the signal bar. It's still showing zero. Damn. How long before they come after us? asks Max. I shake my head. I don't know, I reply. Not long, probably. I can't imagine that it will take them long to have triggered the tripwire feature. I see a light, shouts Mina, interrupting. She's pointing at something through the trees. We turn to look at what she's seen. Sure enough, there's a distant, faint light shining from the other side of the wood. Then it disappears. Fifteen seconds later, it reappears briefly before vanishing again. Then we hear the low rumble of a foghorn. That's gotta be a lighthouse, says Max. We are close to the sea here, I say, thinking. I vaguely recall from my physics lessons that radio waves travel better over water than over land. Perhaps that means we'll get a signal for my mobile on the shore. Head towards the light, I shout to the others. We set off through the woods in the direction of the light, Max more or less carrying his wife. The forest undergrowth is dense and we make slow progress through it. I lead the way, trying to beat the vegetation down as much as possible to make it easier for the others to walk through it. After much scrambling, we make it to the other side of the forest. We find ourselves looking out onto farmland, and beyond that, the North Sea. Lying at the far end of a causeway, some way out into the sea, is the source of the light Mina spotted, a lighthouse. Seeing no other habitation, we decide to head for it. We clamber over the fence and hike over the field towards the lighthouse. On the causeway, our route is blocked by a tall, barbed wire fence and a metal gate. Danger. High tides. Absolutely no admittance to non-authorised persons. Sternly warns a sign. We decide to ignore it. Combining our efforts, Max and I are able to force the gate open. We walk along the causeway, the sea lapping on both sides. The sky has cleared and the feeble moon provides a small degree of illumination. It seems as if the air is getting colder by the minute. I feel a hard frost coming down. We're all beginning to shiver. We need to find shelter and warmth soon. We reach the lighthouse. It's built on a rocky outcrop connected to the mainland via the causeway. There's a small cottage adjacent to the main tower the home in times past, to the lighthouse keeper, I presume, although, with all lighthouses now being fully automated, 
the house has long been empty. The doors to both the lighthouse and the cottage are padlocked, but we're able to break the one for the cottage open with a large stone. Inside, we find that the cottage has been gutted. It's now used as a series of storerooms. I find the connecting door to the lighthouse proper, it's not locked, and climb up the stairs. The inside of the lighthouse is in an even greater state of disrepair than the outside. The metal stairs are rickety and corroded in multiple places. The flooring on each level of the lighthouse isn't much better. At one point, I even have to cross a two-metre hole in the metallic walkway by gingerly traversing a long wooden plank. The plank creaks as I inch along it, but holds firm. Where are health and safety people when you need them? Once at the top of the lighthouse, I pause briefly on the gallery to regain my breath and take in the vista. It's a cold, clear night, and I'm treated to a majestic nighttime view of the whole bay area. However, what really interests me is the reception state of my cell phone. I pull it out and rejoice. It's now showing a couple of bars of signal. I quickly call Ruth's number. She answers immediately. Change of plan, I tell her. Car's out of fuel. We're holed up in a lighthouse a couple of miles from the exchange point. A lighthouse, says Ruth. I hear the clicking of keys in the background. She must be looking our location up online. OK, I got it, she says after a few moments. I'll be there in 20 minutes. Great, we'll hold tight in the meantime, I tell her. I end the call and head back down the stairs. I skip down the steps, relieved to have made contact with Ruth. As soon as she gets here, things will be OK, I think to myself. My good mood dissipates the instant I rejoin the others in the cottage. Max and Mina are close to panic, as Faser doesn't look at all well. She's sweating profusely, grimacing and groaning. Mina turns to me and shouts, Where the hell have you been? Faser's going into labour. Find me some supplies. Chapter 47 I race through the cottage, looking for anything medical. I do manage to find a first aid kit, though it is five years past its best before date. Mina snatches it out of my hands and rips it open. Inside, she finds a couple of bandages, some plasters, a bottle of antiseptic, and a pair of long-armed bandage scissors. Better than nothing, she says, frisking through the contents. Now, I need some water and blankets or towels, whatever you can find. There's a basin in one of the rooms. I turn the tap, but nothing comes out. I root around and find the stopcock. I turn the tap again, and this time cold water comes gushing out. There's a pail under the basin, so I fill it and take it back to Mina. Then I begin my hunt for blankets. I look everywhere in the cottage, but find nothing. I go into the lighthouse proper and search each of the small rooms on the three levels of the tower. One seems to have been used as a file store. It's full of bound, handwritten journals, written back in the days when the keepers were obligated to keep a log of the shipping that passed them. Another room is full of safety equipment, 
life belts, jackets, flags, and the like. The final one, on the highest level, is padlocked, and I have to go outside to fetch a rock in order to smash it open. Inside, I find a camp bed, and a cooking stove plus gas canister. Someone has obviously been staying here recently. As it's Christmas Eve, they perhaps have somewhere better to stay at the moment. I try turning the gas on, but hear nothing. The canister is empty. There are a couple of blankets by the camp bed, and I grab them and bring them downstairs into the cottage. Mina takes the blankets from me gratefully, but things are not going well. Phaser is lying down on the floor, Max's jacket under her, moaning. Max is kneeling beside her, holding her hand. Mina is trying to keep both of them and herself calm. Don't worry, I say. Help will be here shortly. I feel the phone in my pocket vibrate. It's roof calling. The signal is very weak within the cottage, so I go into the lighthouse and climb to the top to answer the call. I'm by the gate to the causeway, Ruth says when I answer. But we've got a problem. What is it? I ask. Look at the causeway, she says. I look down at the causeway. Or where the causeway was. Now there's nothing but sea. The water's at least a metre and a half deep, says Ruth. I can't risk driving through it. The car would be swept into the sea in seconds. Double crap. I'm going to look around for something else, Ruth continues. See if I can find a boat or something to come fetch you. Okay, I say. But you should know that Phaser's going into labour, so when you do reach us, we're going to have to transfer her very carefully. I hear a faint Gaelic curse from the other end of the line as Ruth swears under her breath. It keeps getting better and better, says Ruth. Okay, we'll head straight to a hospital as soon as I pick you up. She hangs up. I see the headlights of the Mercedes come on as Ruth starts the engine up. I watch as they move into the distance. I slam the railing in frustration. Damn the tide. We were so close to being rescued. I consider alternatives to sitting and waiting for Ruth but fail to come up with any. Even though the causeway is no more than a hundred or so metres long, there's no way that we can cross it when it's submerged. Swimming the distance is not an option. Phaser's in no condition to move right now, and the freezing water would likely paralyse us within seconds. Like it or not, we're marooned until Ruth can find a way of rescuing us. I plod back down the stairs to rejoin the others. Max stands up and comes over to me. How are things? I ask. The contractions seem to have stopped, he answers. We've got a bit of breathing room. For now, at least. There's been a delay, I tell him. The tides come in, completely flooding the causeway, so Ruth can't get across. She's looking for a boat to come fetch us. Max nods. He runs a hand wearily through his hair. I guess we're going to be here a while yet, he says. Just as well the Bratvar don't know where we are, I say. Or do they, I think to myself. They plan for the car to run out of fuel, so surely they must have been intending to recapture us after the exchange. But to do that, they would need some way of tracking us. 
I catch sight of Faiza's jacket. It's not the one that she had on the night she was taken from London Bridge. Where did this coat come from? I ask, gesturing at Faiza's jacket. Christoph had a spare one, Max says. The coat she had with her wasn't very warm. This one was better. Let me see it for a moment, I say, fear beginning to stab at my chest again. I pick it up and examine it all over. Halfway down one of the sleeves, I feel a small bump. I tear the cloth with my teeth and extract something small. It's covered in plastic and not much larger than a two-piece drug capsule. One end has a blinking red light. Max and I stare at it in horror. We both know what it is. Tracking device, Max says grimly. I drop it on the floor and grind it to pieces with my boot. The tracker is destroyed, but has the damage already been done? Wait here, I tell Max, and I race out of the room and head up the stairs. Once at the top, I frantically scan the bay. Everything seems quiet. Then I notice two shapes on the water, out to the west. I narrow my gaze. I realise that they are boats. Boats that are moving slowly, but steadily towards us. In a beat, I realise what this means. We've been found by the Bratvar. That was Episode 9 of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at chronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 4.0 International License.